Hi, welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. And on today's episode, I'm going to be talking to John Harney about some big topics uh, going on in the world of history and games, uh, including new announcements from Paradox about upcoming releases, uh, continuing stories about workplace misconduct at Ubisoft. Uh, But John, uh, we are going to get started by talking about some new developments in history games and academia. Uh, And in particular, uh, we're going to talk about the most recent issue of the American Historical Review, uh, which, uh, for the very first time, is including historical game reviews. Uh, And just for the listener, these historical game reviews are available uh, to view for free, uh, actually, uh, on uh, academic.oup, Oxford University Press, dot com. And then from there, search for the American Historical Review. Uh, So, John, uh, (laughs) I keep messing up this intro, but welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Bob. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, So, John, have you had a chance uh, to look at these uh, new video game reviews from the American Historical Review? Um, Yeah, a little bit. I haven't haven't really read all of them all the way through, I'm sorry to say. Um, I was excited that my own book was in the American Historical Review, (laughs) so I got distracted. Was it in the Um, same issue? uh, Yeah, I I believe so. I know it was March this year, so it must be the same issue. Um, so I didn't, I don't have any kind of, I know this is terrible. Sorry, listeners, but I guess my main takeaway is I'm glad this happened. Yeah. Overly simplistic. This is, I mean, even not to say anything about the reviews in and of themselves, but the very fact it's happening is a big deal. And I think is kind of, um, I think obviously you and I'd be quite happy about, um, but it's kind of interesting because I think so much of what history respond does whatever about the original goals is kind of bridging two worlds, as it were, of academic and non-academic. Um, this is more of a case of now we can invite people, hey, go and this is the world Bob and I came from, just so you can see mm-hmm. what's going on in there. So I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, making it free and things like that, I I think this is part of a broader attempt within academia to try and get a bit better about being open to more people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still feels to me like a little bit like this is our old world catching up a little bit yeah which, yeah which is great which is great news which is very exciting yeah so for uh, our uh, our non-academic listeners um i'm gonna go into a, a brief discussion of what the american historical review actually is so the american historical review is a traditional academic journal that is uh, published uh, by oxford university press uh, and it is run by the american historical association or the aha so um, the important thing to know is that the American Historical Review is probably the most important historical journal, academic historical journal in the world. Um, Oxford Uni- University Press is kind of one of the um, key uh, university presses out there. The American Historical Review is their number one uh, journal uh, in terms of readership, in terms of uh, what they call impact factor. Um, you know, just general importance to the field of history. Uh, so uh, it's a really, really big deal. Uh, you know, the American Historical Association that runs the HR uh, is by far the biggest historical association of academic historians in the world. Um, so it is it's a very influential journal, right? You know, people um, can make their careers uh, based on getting a peer-reviewed journal uh, article published 
by the American Historical Review. Uh, and uh, for a lot of ways, or in a lot of ways, the American Historical Review is kind of the you know, what you hear from journalists, you know, the, the publication of record, right? You know, the way they talk about the New York Times. Uh, and it is called the American Historical Review, but the AHR does not only cover American history. Um, if you were to go onto the AHR's website, look at the most recent issue, uh, which is uh, volume 126, issue one, March uh, 2021, uh, you can go through their um, review section, uh, and it is subdivided in um, different fields, different time periods, uh, you know, European history, world history, Asian history, all sorts of histories are included uh, within the AHR. So it's a really, really important, really, really impactful journal. Uh, and uh, for the first time, as we said at the top, it is including uh, historical game reviews. And uh, for this issue, uh, issue one for March uh, 2021, uh, they have got uh, four uh, pieces in here about historical games. Uh, they include uh, three game reviews uh, and then one article uh, that looks at uh, the depiction of Nazi Germany in the Second World War uh, in uh, recent historical games uh, like the Wolfenstein series and of Call of Duty games. Uh, so the games that are reviewed uh, in this journal are ones that should be pretty familiar uh, to listeners of History Respawn, and they include a review of Assassin's Creed 3, uh, a review of Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, uh, and then a review of Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, which was a DLC uh, downloadable content for Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag. So kind of a good uh, jumping off point, I think, for the HR to, to focus on uh, the Assassin's Creed series, and then also to have uh, an article uh, here writ uh, written by Andrew Denning, uh, who's at Kansas, uh, looking at uh, depictions of Nazi Germany uh, in, in the Nazi party in recent video games. So, you know, I think if you were to look at this as kind of a, a starting point in terms of content uh, for what would be of interest to other academics about historical games, I don't think you could do much better than looking at Assassin's Creed and then looking at the depiction of Nazi Germany in games. I'd have to say, too, I think they deserve credit for that um, kind of more inside baseball stuff. Like if you'd said to me 10 years ago, for example, the American Historical Review was going to uh, you know, have video, some video game reviews. I'd be like, well, obviously, they're going to go for the most ludicrously esoteric games possible. That's what academics do. <laughs> you know, Gravity Bone, uh, Company of Heroes, the first one, um, you know, and, uh, I, and I, I can't even, you know, one of the Gary Grigsby games, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like something like that. And instead, they kind of went for like, quote unquote, obvious ones. I mean, games, for example, History Spawn has covered a lot. Um, but that's actually, I think that's positive. That's a good thing. I think that's kind of, that's that's emblematic of, a desire to be more open, um, which, as Bob and I well know, has been acad academia shoots itself in the foot a lot with gatekeeping and uh, snobbiness, snobbishness, really. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think they deserve credit for that. And know, the AHR, I think, in a lot of ways, um, because of its stature, can often be the most snobby uh, out of the journals. Yeah. And I would say that that has changed a bit over the past few years. I think the editorial team has done a, quite a bit of work to try to change that. But, you know, historically speaking, it would have been unheard of to have game reviews, particularly reviews of popular games uh, in the pages of the American Historical Review. 
Right, exactly, exactly. Beyond, for example, like an artistic project or something or a specific, like an exclusively educational project that was designed to not be fun, you know, or something, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. So, yeah, so it's all good news. Yeah, and uh, so as far as the content of these reviews and this article uh, by Andrew Denning, um, you know, I leave it to the listener uh, to go and check this stuff out again. Uh, this stuff is available to view for free, and I'll put this link in the show notes. Uh, but this uh, material on video games in the AHR uh, is available to view for free, and now it is very rare uh, for academic journals to provide any of their content for free. Uh, so you should go and uh, take a look at this stuff if you get the chance, or if you are interested, because uh, it it could be put behind a paywall um, before you know it. But (laughs) as far as the actual content of these reviews in this article, I've read it all. um, And I just wanted to kind of highlight a few things. I think, um, you know, going forward, I would hope that uh, the people who review um, historical games for the HR, uh, I would hope that they would not necessarily... Uh, look at these games uh, solely as games, uh, but instead think of uh, how they are engaging with established historiography. Um, And I would say uh, out of these reviews that are in this uh, AHR, uh, the review of Assassin's Creed 3 by Michael Haddam is really a standout one. Uh, Great success because it not only does a review of Assassin's Creed 3 as a game, but it also relates that game's depiction of American colonial history with other popular forms of entertainment about the colonial era. And so Michael uh, relates Assassin's Creed III to the depiction of the colonial era by uh, the HBO miniseries on John Adams, uh, as well as the uh, uh, musical uh, Hamilton, uh, and kind of looking at the ways in which uh, this game, Assassin's Creed III, has actually provided a more nuanced look uh, at uh, the colonial era uh, than what you get from other forms of popular culture uh, set in the same historical time period. So really, really good review. And that kind of review is one that I would hope to see uh, going forward, because I think there's a tendency when academics write about video games to uh, obviously automatically dismiss the history and the historical detail that go into the games, you know, that's not a big surprise. Uh, but uh, I think there's a, a tendency to avoid the ways in which uh, this uh, history in these games kind of implicates the work that scholars have and have not been doing with reaching a public audience, right? And so uh, I think there's a grounds by which you could say, uh, you could critically analyze these things and say, what does this tell us, the, this depiction of history in popular formats? What does this tell us about the ways in which our scholarship is reaching a wider audience? Um, and I think Michael Adams' review of Assassin's Creed III uh, does a really good job of that. So I'd really hope to see that kind of work going forward. And another thing, another criticism that I've seen so far of this uh, first slate of historical game reviews in the HR is that uh, none of the writers of these reviews uh, are women. And so, uh, you know, I think that's a a point that stands out uh, not just in this HR, but then one that's kind of a wider problem for academia where uh, you still have uh, a lot of topics that uh, are 
you know, seeing more and more uh, problems related to uh, a lack of diversity in terms of how they're covered by academics in academic journals, uh, in secondary literature, uh, published books, for instance, textbooks. Uh, but then also a big problem has been um, representation of different groups at conferences. Uh, so this isn't a problem just for the HR, uh, but it is one that I think uh, you know the editors of the HR could easily address because there's a lot of great uh, diverse writers, uh, you know, who write about history and games, uh, in, you know, out there, uh, and they're pretty easy to find. We've had many of them uh, as guests on History Respawn. It's it's a it's a meta commentary on games more broadly, and there and the the video game industry is horrific kind yes. of uh, issues. There's um there's a a woman I follow on Twitter. Um, oh God, I forget if she works. She's in the industry. I think she works for Riot. I'm trying to remember. And she just shared this morning, you don't have to shoot your shot. Just some random guy who's like, you know, coming onto her in DMs on Twitter. It's mm-hmm. like, just, you know, come on, man. Like, it's just kind of, you know, so maybe it's a meta commentary on that. No, but it's, um, no, it's, it, I think it's exciting, exciting overall. Bob, did you, uh, how many times do they write between the four of them a lens through which? That's the big thing I need to know. <laughs> I, I did not it's read that. Of yours. I did not, I did not read that anywhere in there. I did, uh, see, uh, a, a general use of the term gamer, uh, which is kind of, uh, passe, I would say in games journalism and games writing, mm-hmm. you know, most people use the term player. Um, so, I mean, it, and that's kind of to be expected. I wouldn't be too hard on the HR for that because, you know, this is their first salvo uh, in writing about uh, historical games. And so it's to be expected that maybe the way in which they talk about these games is a bit, um, I would say, uh, a reflection of their background, right? It's not like they're that, the writers are that well versed in um, games uh, and games literature, which should be expected, I think. But, um, you know, at the same time, I think it would be useful for the editors of the HR, uh, to reach out to some of the people who are in, um, you know, the historical game space, you know, a lot of these, uh, writers, uh, and, uh, scholars that we featured on history respawn, uh, people who are a part of the historical games network that's been recently created. Uh, they would be very eager, uh, to write for the HR, I think, and to write these kind of reviews. So, you know, again, this is just the first attempt. I'm sure it'll get better from here. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would say for the editors of the HR uh, to be on the lookout uh, for those kind of people and encourage them to uh, submit articles, encourage them to um, uh, write these reviews because uh, it is a, it's a really great opportunity, right, to have a journal of the stature of the American Historical Review uh, include this kind of work as a really big stepping stone. Uh, for the study of historical games uh, more generally. And it, and it also opens up uh, this field um, to the extent that it exists so far. It opens up to a more diverse group of scholars and people who um, can bring new insights. Uh, you know, so it's not just about what historical game scholars can bring to the AHR. Uh, it's also, I think, really importantly, uh, what the AHR can bring for uh, the study of historical games. So really, really exciting moment. And it, as I said on Twitter, uh, when I was promoting uh, these free articles, these free reviews on the HR uh, a couple weeks ago, um, I kind of see this moment as the end of the beginning 
uh, for historical games. Uh, you know, this is uh, the end of the beginning for the ways in which academics approach uh, historical games. Now, obviously, there's a lot more work to be done. Um, it, you know, this field needs to be diversified in a lot of different ways, not just in terms of the scholars working on it, but in terms of the topics that are dealt with. Uh, but at the same time, you know, to have this included in such a big journal uh, is a really, really big deal. I mean, I know for non-academic listeners, they're probably like, what is he talking about? You know, I'm not going to go and look up, uh, you know, an academic journal. But at the same time, like for academics, this is a really big deal. And, you know, I think what you're going to see from this is a lot more uh, academics being encouraged to write about games. And so that should be exciting, even for non-academic listeners. And I, I think as well that it's um, there's something transformative, there's transformative potential here, like you're saying, Bob. So in my, I've been involved in college esports a lot the last two years, and you can't really separate college esports from streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't, and which makes sense because you can't really separate esports as an activity from streaming of esports. And Bob, you and I remember when Twitch was Justin TV. Remember that? Yes. <laughs> um, our, our mutual friend, Dan Wold, used Justin TV to watch a Northwestern bowl game while visiting me in Ireland one Christmas, which is what Justin TV was for. It was for watching illegal streams of American sports. <laughs> and then, you know, with Twitch, it becomes this esports thing. And then, and it's, it's transforming, you know, media, which is not too big a claim. Our listeners wouldn't know this, but the academic journal model is uh, broken and terrible yes. and makes no sense. Yes. Um, it makes no sense at all and is completely based on free labor and nobody's able to get access to things. That's why it's a very big deal. These articles are readily accessible. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I hope, yeah, Historical Games Network and some of those people like like our good friend Esther Wright and some of these really cool people. Um, yeah, looking forward, looking forward to that for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's uh, turn to a more traditional topic for History Respawn, and let's talk a bit about what Paradox uh, has been up to. Uh, So Paradox, uh, they had their uh, big conference uh, recently, a slew of announcements that came out uh, just this week, actually, I think. Um, And uh, a couple of the announcements that came out included uh, a new expansion uh, for CK3. uh, And then finally, 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 and this is for real, it's been confirmed, uh, Paradox's next big uh, historical game is going to be Victoria 3, Vicky 3, uh, which has been obviously the the fodder for a lot of memes <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> and elsewhere, uh, demanding that Paradox work on uh, Vicky 3. Uh, and now it's finally here. So, John, I'll turn to you. I've, I've been talking a lot about uh, academia and the HR. So I'll let you uh, take the stage here for a moment and talk a little bit about Paradox's announcements, in particular, uh, the new expansion for Crusader Kings 3. Yeah, I'll I, I start with Crusader Kings 3. Um, so I'm really intrigued by this expansion. I think one of the things that's interesting about the new Crusader Kings game is that they've taken a lot of ideas they developed over the course of Crusader Kings 2's existence, um, which in Crusader Kings 2's case came in as expansions. Now, of course, fair play to them. It would have been quite depressing if they had just you know, uh, upgraded the engine and said, good news, you get to play an Indian uh, culture two years from now and pay us $20 for the privilege. <laughs> um, but it, it definitely opened up this question, well, what will the DLC look like? And this new DLC you know, is going to be focusing on this idea of like having a 3D throne room 
um, where you can receive uh, other character, uh, non-player characters, and I believe you can kind of display things that you own and things like this. So the game is kind of returning to this inventory type system, which Crusader Kings 2 played around with quite a lot, where you could own something like a relic, for example. Which, you know, was a really big deal um, in the medieval period. You know, if you're such and such a duke of an eastern part of France or whatever, and you have St. Teresa's finger joint, um, that's actually kind of important. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so, so you, get to, you get to have these kinds, of, these kinds of things. So I'm quite excited about it. I, I'm kind of curious to see what it will end up looking like as a royal court idea. But I also think it's quite promising in the sense that it builds on what they've been trying to do um, with CK3 and building something from CK2, which is they've really been, and I think from an historian's point of view, they've been fiddling around a lot with, like, what does it mean to be a ruler in the sense of just beyond being able to raise an army or raise taxes or build a bridge over there? Like, we know that um, kings and emperors and chieftains and all these different kind of, you know, to use the CK3 terms, all these different kinds of rulers, displaying their power was a big part of, their power and 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 that power existing um you know when we teach world history i'm sure you've had this experience bob um you know explaining to students you know in the medieval world why does anybody care it's like well demonstrating you're powerful um is a big thing showing off your wealth is a big thing this kind of this this grandeur kind of system that uh, they're bringing in, you know, that they're, they're developing. What they have at the moment, it's more well-developed so far. If you pick up CK3 today and play it, which is everyone listening knows I recommend you do, uh, they have a pretty mature dread mechanic now, which is quite good. And on the gameplay side, it works really nicely because you can effectively build your character in a way that you would in an RPG, for example. So I'm, well, I'll talk about him later. I'm currently playing as a Norse ruler in, in what is now called Scotland. And his dread rating was very, very high, which was actually gave him, I could do things with that character I couldn't do with a different kind of a character. But it also allows the game to kind of display a tyrant in a way that makes sense. And isn't just a cartoonish way of doing it. So the throne room, I think the Royal court rather DLC is an idea that like, we can do more with this. I think paradox yeah. have realized, you know, we can do some really interesting things here and we know we have, you know, one of the things the games have done has leaned into the storytelling mode. Like if you play CK three now and even modern day CK two and compare it, for example, to Europa Universalis IV, or when you play Victoria III to that, those are very systems-heavy games, economy-heavy games, things like that. The Crusader Kings games, you know, you throw a feast and you're effectively playing an interactive fiction game mm -hmm. suddenly for like five minutes maybe. Um, and they've made, they've done something with that. And I think one of the reasons it works is ideas like this. So I, I hope they pull it off. I think they will. I think the dread mechanic is evidence they can do it. Um, but the idea that like if your king or queen is someone who spends a lot of money and has lots of gold in her throne room and it's kind of an idiot and doesn't, you know, spends all the money on that, <laughs> you could, you know, it, you know, in this kind of modern technocratic style, right? Uh, that could be useful for her, you know? That could help her become like you know, generate more loyalty among her vassals and all these kinds of things. So, yeah, really exciting. And, and also, I think, very promising in the direction. They clearly have not come close to running out of ideas of where to take Crusader Kings games, yeah. which is also very, very encouraging. And that's really crazy. I mean, when you think about the long history of Crusader Kings, and I'm not even going back to the first game, but just CK2, you think about all the different types of DLC that they came out with, and you kind of referenced that at the beginning of what you said. 
um, you know, there was a lot of different ideas uh, in those uh, pieces of DLC, and now we're getting even further iterations on those old ideas, but then also completely new ideas uh, with this uh, CK3 DLC. And so, like you said, that's really exciting. And I think it's also really interesting to me, uh, you know, like the way you've described it, the way in which they are diversifying the gameplay elements uh, with this new DLC and with other work that they've done with CK3. So it's not just kind of the um, grand strategy view, um, you know, controlling units, controlling economics that you would get, you know, even out of uh, base versions of CK2, but it's also kind of these added RPG elements, which I think, you know, really vary up the gameplay and make it something that's not just your bread and butter, but something that attracts other game players and even for traditional uh, players of the game uh, could vary things up and make it more interesting, right? Where you're not just stuck there playing the same thing uh, for five or six hours on a Saturday afternoon, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I I know many, many players are like that. They would happily just keep going with that. But, you know, for some of us, it is a lot of fun to have kind of different gameplay styles included in the same game. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think something the new game Crusader Kings 3, I think, is getting a lot of success with, certainly when I'm playing it, is the culture culture and religion systems. They've continued to develop them. And they developed a lot with CK2, but, you know, you're always struggling when you have this initial architecture, right? You have to kind of build around it. So to give you an example of my current playthrough, I haven't done a good job in kind of um, bringing people into my court, and therefore I don't really have people to give um, titles to. Now, what I do have is concubines, or women, as my Norse guy calls them, his woman. And I'd be like, it'd be great to give, I would happily give her Ulster. Um, but the game won't let me. However, the game points out in their magnificent tooltip system, if you were to reform the religion, you could just change that so that giving women a title wouldn't be a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Now, the game's not going to make it easy, because you know historically that would have been interesting and it it would have been against the grain of what most you know men in power were doing but the game lets you do it you know it's like you can go and you can do it you kind of play by these rules that are kind of gameplay rules that are kind of historical rules um and i think paradox have figured out it's actually just makes a better game like Mm -hmm. like i was reading recently about um the new oregon trail game the reimagined game for apple arcade where the Australian publisher was like, well, how do we do this? And they reached out to a couple of academics, Native American academics. And one of the changes they made was, instead of having bow and arrows, it actually makes more sense if the Americans you encounter, the Native Americans, have, have guns. That makes more sense. And I thought, it also sounds cooler. You know, like there's this kind <laughs> of, there's this assumption that being, quote unquote, more historical makes things more dry. And that doesn't have to be the case. And Crusader Kings 2 is like, well, what, what does history tell us? It tells us that personality and grandeur and being willing to spend money and flaunting things and frankly, psychological intimidation and charm and all these things, all that stuff, those could be very valuable weapons mm-hmm. for, for particular kinds of states people. And so now in Crusader Kings 3, you can play yourself as, you know, someone who's using their sexuality or is willing to scheme or whatever the case might be to get ahead. And I think that 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 gets you into questions of contingency and agency and all these good things and we're getting closer bob to the holy grail where i could genuinely say to a couple of 20 year olds in class let's play ck3 for a week come back and talk about it (laughs) we're not there just yet it's still a bit too hard i I think in certain settings you're already there but yeah i understand what you're saying true 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 yeah very true um yeah just quickly uh, to note uh we are planning on covering uh the new oregon trail game 
this summer. So in case you're curious about that uh, History Respawn listener, uh, we've got some stuff planned. I've been working on a research article about the original Oregon Trail game from 1971. So a lot of thoughts percolating, but uh, uh, we we haven't gotten around to uh, putting that all together yet. But we are going to have episodes on that. So uh, it's good of John to bring that up, though. Well, I wanted to say for Victoria 3, I'd actually throw it back to you, Bob. I'll yes. say very briefly, I'm excited to see, I'm excited at the idea of how Ireland would play into this. Obviously, it's basically, it's part of Britain. It's a particular time period. But you you are the person to talk about Victorian period broadly anyway. But what do you think of Victoria 3? Well, so what are you looking for? Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have that many details yet. Uh, you know, there's some reference to the fact that uh, this game is going to be built upon more social systems uh, than in the past, uh, you know, kind of less about uh, resource management uh, like uh, Victoria 2 uh, was and kind of thinking of this more as a society simulator uh, in the words of Paradox. Uh, so I am interested to see how that works. You know, there is... Uh, kind of an element to what Paradox presented with Victoria 3, that it'll be uh, looking at, um, you know, kind of internal social relations uh, within uh, nations rather than kind of uh, external uh, foreign policy. So you'll be looking at uh, balancing different demands between different socioeconomic groups uh, and then trying to avoid, in your domestic sphere, try to avoid revolution, right? Uh, and in this sense, you know, they're kind of hearkening to the ideas uh, related to what's going on in Europe in the 19th century, you know, uh, as I would say in class 1848 and all that, right? And so um, <laughs> I, I'm encouraged by that, and I'm encouraged by the idea of, you know, seeing a more diverse perspective uh, from kind of traditional powers within Victoria III as to what those European states in uh, this modern setting in you know the 18th, late 18th, uh, going through the early 20th centuries, uh, seeing a more diverse uh, idea, more diverse ideologies as to what these states were at the time. Because I think, you know, when you have a grand strategy game like this set in the 19th century, the easy tendency is to look at it simply as uh, unified European nations developing uh, empires overseas, right? Particularly in Africa mm-hmm. and Asia. Uh, but you know, as you know, uh, John, you know, from studying modern China, um, you know, as I know, studying from modern Britain, uh, there were all sorts of different avenues, different ideologies that were percolating within these states and within their imperial possessions in which things could have turned out very differently, right? Uh, You know, what if Mm -hmm. there had been uh, a revolution in Britain? Uh, What if the Chartists, you know, had able to pull off a revolution in Britain in the mid-19th century? What that would have have created, you know? What if there had been a uh, more steady push uh, within Prussia uh, towards socialism? Um, So there's all these other kind of little avenues, uh, not even little, uh, significant avenues uh, within history at this time that I'm I'm encouraged by the idea from Paradox here of society simulators and kind of getting to those uh, kind of more diverse uh, political perspectives from this time period. Now, I'm excited about that. But on the other hand, I am a little bit worried about Paradox perspective on this era of history, because, you know, as we've uh, been seeing recently with discussions about what's going on, uh, with uh, Israel and Palestine, 
topics related to uh, colonialism, settler colonialism, um, there's all sorts of opportunities for uh, paradox to get this kind of history of 19th century, early 20th century colonialism, empire building wrong, right? Uh, and to do it in a way that is old fashioned and ham fisted. Uh, and, you know, I think you can see some of that in uh, Victoria 2, which again is a game that came out 10 years ago. So it's kind of unfair to judge. But I think in the ways in which Paradox has adapted that history in the past, uh, it hasn't always been uh, what you might call not only accurate, but then also uh, respectful to uh, different kinds of perspectives, non-European uh, perspectives, namely uh, about the same history. And another thing that gives me pause is what we've seen more recently, uh, particularly with uh, Paradox and their DLC for Hearts of Iron, right? So, you know, with Hearts of Iron, we've got, uh, you know, with Hearts of Iron 4, we've got a more diverse perspective on the Second World War. But at the same time, with some of the DLC that Paradox has created, it's kind of leaned into um, what is really uh, accurately called kind of ultra right wing perspectives on the Second World War. Um, you know, they have a whole DLC that's dedicated to uh, alternate history uh, related to the Confederacy uh, retaking uh, the United States, uh, killing off uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and reestablishing the Confederacy in the midst of the Second World War. And so that kind of uh, counterfactual history, I think, is okay in certain circumstances. But in our current political climate, you know, it has the um, opportunity to be seen as kind of leaning into the very worst impulses of some of the player base uh, for these types of games. Uh, and, you know, we've kind of talked about this before, John, with uh, Paradox uh, and the ways in which uh, this uh, European country, uh, European uh, developer, uh, I think, aren't quite as aware of the types of toes they, they won't be stepping on with adapting these kinds of histories. And so given that recent track records, some of their other titles, uh, I am a little bit concerned about them moving into the same sort of territory when it comes to Victoria 3, right, which is looking at 18th through uh, 20th century uh, European mm -hmm. colonial history. Uh, there's a lot of potential pitfalls there uh, that uh, they could run into. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, they've they've got a lot of experience developing these types of games. It has been a full 10-ish years since Victoria 2 came out. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt right now. I I, I think it's funny you bring up the origin, like the geographic origin of Paradox as well, because... You know, I, I, I just I didn't have as visceral a reaction to the Confederate stuff as you did, and I didn't have as kind of a strong a reaction. And part of you wonders is that because I'm European, um, <laughs> but but I, but I, but I but where I completely I couldn't agree more is you know this is the challenge video games have in that um, you know I mean you can be the Nazis in Hearts of Iron Four, and it would yeah. kind of be ridiculous if you couldn't be the Nazis yes. in Hearts of Iron Four. So, and there are many many people. Um, not just in the video game space, but also in the um, tabletop space, who 
you know, who 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 will control German armies because it's fun. And the next playthrough, you'll control Allied armies, and it's it's not a thing. Now, where it becomes a thing, for example, is if you decide you want to dress up as a member of the SS while you're doing it. Now you have a problem, right? But then video games creates that really challenge. You're immediately participating. So so where I where I get where I have guarded optimism of Victoria three is because they obviously know this, right? And they could have chosen not to do it. And so, for example, like, you know, the first game was, if the time frame for the first game was 1836 to 1936. So the scramble for Africa in, in real history is slap bang in the middle of that period. Yeah. This is effectively what we historians call new imperialism, right? Yeah. The aftermath of imperialism. So they could walk away and do a different game. So, so I'm optimistic they have thought about this. And I look at something like Imperator Rome, which I kind of thought they were going to invest more in that game than they did, actually. Which is not to say they haven't invested in it. It's just that Imperator Rome, it's clear, was not really ever meant to be like a Europa Universalis-type game where they get these massive expansions twice a year or whatever. But Imperator Rome, for people who haven't played it, tries some interesting things with the Senate and with all these kinds of things. And it, it's, it's just... I mean, all the Paradox games are different mechanics. But I see interesting potential there for thinking about internal dynamics in a different kind of way. So, for example, in Victoria 3, can I be the Fenians, to use an example from my own country? Um, what will it mean if you want to control? Um, is there some kind of African group you can control where, okay, maybe it's more difficult to succeed than it is if you're Britain or Prussia, but it's not, you know, insanity mode, mm -hmm. you know? So, so let's see. Let's see. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, can't wait to can't wait to hear more. I mean, yeah. it's it's in it's. I can't wait to find out more. It's an yeah. intriguing decision. I, I'm very surprised. I did not think they. Were, I did not think they were going to do it. At least not anytime soon. I didn't think so either. Um, I don't really know what I expected them to do, but I didn't really expect uh, Victoria Three to be announced. But I would say, you know, despite my you know, reticence and hesitations here, I would say that I am really excited that this game is coming out because I think, you know, as I've uh, tried to make the argument over and over again. Um, I do appreciate when these developers uh, take on uh, more difficult or potentially difficult historical topics and time periods, uh, because, you know, as many people have pointed out uh, recently, you know, with the discussions related to uh, Israel and Palestine uh, and, you know, kind of other issues related to colonialism around the world. Uh, this is a topic that doesn't get enough discussion, uh, regardless of what your perspective on all these topics are. It doesn't get enough discussion. And there is a very concerted effort uh, for many European countries to downplay uh, imperial history, to downplay this era of history, uh, because it does bring up so many difficult topics, so many uh, uh, things that make European states look bad, uh, even to this day. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I would say, on the one hand, I'm worried. I'm worried for for paradox about running into trouble uh, with this. But at the same time, I do hope that this encourages players to uh, kind of consider uh, the ways in which these colonial issues aren't just a topic for history, but are something that are still with us uh, to this very day in a very real sense. Um, and, you know, to think about that legacy, because so many European states and America uh, can be fall, can be lumped into this as well. Um, so many of these states uh, actively look for ways to excise uh, colonial history from their textbooks, uh, from their historical projects. 
and I see Victoria Three is a, a way to perhaps bring up those topics uh, and uh, deal with them uh, in a way that could be you know good for everybody. Uh, you know, anything that helps to kind of um, uh, you know, help the give life to these historical topics in public discourse, I think is a good thing because, you know, so many people look at this, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, we can't have a game uh, bearing the load uh, for this history. And I think that's true. But at the same time, as uh, an educator, somebody who's familiar with teaching in the U.S., somebody who's uh, studied Europe uh, for most of his life, um, there's very often a case where it's not just about, you know, who gets to talk about this topic, but whether or not this topic gets talked about at all. And, 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 and for me, I'm, I'm just thinking of, you know, in the trailer, um, there's this focus on kind of, you know, fruits of the industrial revolution, right? Well, what's another major result of the industrial revolution damage to the planet. And so I feel like, you know, with the game made in 2021, I'd be stunned if they don't talk about that in some kind of a way, whether it's deforestation, what railway tracks do and everything else. And then, and I, I confess, sorry, listeners, I didn't play Victoria 2 just to freshen my mind before we talked about this, <laughs> because I'd love, you know, and I also think of not just the uneven distribution of the benefits of the Dust Revolution, where certain states become very, very powerful, but attempts by other states to, um, to industrialize with mixed results. I'm thinking Russia, yeah. the Ottoman Empire, maybe Japan, um, there's a lot of interest and potential there. Like, like I, so let's see, let, let, you know, so it, to get away just from the British Isles, but to really, and, you know, <laughs> and further East than Prussia would be fascinating. Yeah. It is interesting though. I think, um, you know, I, 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 I wonder if they, and this is just kind of big picture thinking, I wonder if people, how many players are put off by the title of that game? you know, Victoria three, mm. um, because yeah. that is something that, you know, you would, you would assume is synonymous with British history with British Imperial history. And so I wonder how many potential players of this game. And if we're talking about how many people are going to be exposed to this history through this game, I wonder how many players are put off by that title. I wonder if they may have been better off giving it a, a new title, <laughs> uh, rather than, Victoria three. I don't know. What, what do you think, John? Well, I was just running over my head while you're talking. I was just thinking, uh, Crusader Kings, Europa Universalis, Imperator Rome. I think we've established that, uh, they've been in DGAF mode with naming for a long time. <laughs> Hearts of Irons, maybe their most. Very low, true. Very low, true. You know. Yeah. But I, I could, I completely agree, but I think paradox has decided that they are who they are at this point. So in fairness, paradox, I mean, we talk about the names. I mean, I've become such a big fan of their games. I, I've all I've forgotten now that shock when you first install a game, and you turn it on the Paradox game, and it's just a map and lots of numbers, and you really don't know what to do. <laughs> so that's kind of that's their larger problem, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll table that discussion of the title of the game. <laughs> Maybe it'll come back up uh, as we get closer uh, to the launch date. Uh, really quick here, I, I wanted to mention a, a couple other uh, pieces of news, uh, one uh, coming from Ubisoft. Uh, you know, we talked about this last summer, uh, but there has been uh, ongoing problems at Ubisoft, the developer of the Assassin's Creed series, along with the Watch Dogs series, many other series, uh, ongoing problems uh, with issues related to sexual misconduct. And uh, this was a big news story that came out uh, summer 
of last year, uh, and it is uh, continuing to percolate here. Uh, recently, there was a new report saying that uh, Ubisoft, uh, despite this news of uh, sexual misconduct and a kind of a, a frat house culture uh, at the developer, that uh, many of the employees still feel that uh, the company hasn't done enough uh, to address these problems. And there's a story I'm looking at here. Uh, dated May 24th, uh, talking uh, with uh, Ubisoft's CEO, uh, in which he's arguing that they are trying to address these issues. Uh, and then he's got a, a statement here uh, entitled, A Year of Change at Ubisoft, in which they are stressing that they're trying to uh, build a roadmap uh, for a better Ubisoft for us all. Uh, so that is some uh, great uh, PR cult, uh, <laughs> company speech there, a business speech. Um, but it does uh, worry us here at History Respawn that these stories continue to, to uh, occur and that it does seem like um, uh, despite the CEO's uh, statements that um, there are still issues with this developer. And it's a developer that obviously we have, uh, you know, covered a lot uh, with our content here at History Respawn. And, you know, like we said last year, uh, it does make us question that kind of work going forward uh, if this kind of, uh, um, you know, situation with abuse, uh, sexual misconduct isn't addressed. Um, and, you know, it's despite the fact that uh, our content related to Assassin's Creed is by far our most popular content on History Respawn, and I'm sure other people focused on uh, the topic of historical games would probably say the same thing, right? It is really something that gains a lot of attention, gains a, a wide audience, uh, but at the same time, we really can't abide uh, by this kind of um, situation. Uh, going on with the developer of this. And, um, you know, I'll just continue to stress that it uh, does make me question how much we will cover uh, Ubisoft's con you know, content uh, going forward. Uh, but I want to speak for you, John. What do you think? No, I, I agree with all that. And I, I think that, um, you know, when I, when I think of sports, and I, I teach my sports class, and you have this issue of English hooliganism in the late 20th century, and... Um, how all soccer fans were kind of tarred with this brush of being savage or violent or whatever. And it turns out that some of that, some people would say most of it or even all of it, but certainly some of it was coming from a very Thatcherite, you know, um, looking down your noses at the unwashed type thing. Um, I, I think it's important for all of us as video game fans to understand that we still have a problem. And I think that, I think Ubisoft clearly has issues it's got to deal with. I think, you know, this this memo, Bob, you're ref referencing, there are those who are arguing this is pretty cynical because a major article in a French newspaper the previous week had effectively called Ubisoft out. Mm -hmm. um, and so and so there's a feeling that this is really just damage control as opposed to really trying to share, you know, because the corporate talk, I mean, this happens. There's people whose entire job is to think of processes. To do this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to do this kind of thing. So, And it's challenging because it's very hard to know outside the cor culture, the corporate culture, if this is just BS or, or if it's something. And with companies as large as Ubisoft, you can be in the company and not be sure yeah. if it's BS or not. And so it's incumbent upon Gimo and others to make sure the people that work for them feel safe and everything else. But I also think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, um, and of course, I think many of us do, that we need to be careful not to think that Ubisoft is exceptional in some way. Yeah. That maybe Ubisoft is just a very large, very successful, successful company. And so we're seeing evidence of problems that are probably elsewhere 
in the industry and we see it even down to the micro level and um you know it's not okay that um aspects of the culture are still dominated by kind of a teenage boy kind of aesthetic that can be there mm-hmm. like something like griefing you know like griefing is a dumb thing you know i know i know women do these things too but these silly things that the medium is growing past it and you know that's important. So yeah, so fingers crossed, very hopeful that Ubisoft can kind of get its house in order. Because on the flip side is also true that if Ubisoft is effectively just, you know, demonstrating that this is a problem across the whole industry, Ubisoft also has a fantastic opportunity to show other companies of its similar size to it and smaller, you can you can fix it. You yeah. can prevent these problems. You can you can protect people. People can feel safe and people can speak up and that's okay. And, yeah. and not only is it okay, but it's good business, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it yeah. and it creates better art for people. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. All right. And then the uh, last bit of news is uh, related to our ongoing uh, limited series, Civs 101. So I wanted to pass this idea uh, by John and uh, vis-a-vis all the listeners as well. Uh, but I wanted to cover as part of Civs 101, uh, Sid Meier's new memoir, uh, which came out in September. Now, I'd gotten a uh, advanced copy of this book, uh, and I had meant to write a review and post it uh, to historyrespawn.com. I never did that because I decided I wanted to do Civs 101, the video series, instead. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do that was to try something a bit different with a book review. So, John, this is my idea for Sid Meier's memoir. I've, I've read the book, I've taken detailed notes, and what I want to do is I want to produce a video for Civs 101, in which I appear on camera and then have a separate camera uh, that shows me leafing through the book uh, and reading out certain passages and reading out notes that I've made on it. So does that sound like compelling content uh, from my co-host on History Respond? I like it. It's funny. I was going to I was going to suggest do you remember that uh, that show, the Jim Henson show, The Storyteller, where John Hurt tells stories? Yes, and they have, of course. Yeah, yeah. love that. I was going to say you should just do that, <laughs> but you've actually you've but you've actually kind of pitched like a non a non silly jokey version of that. And I, I think it sounds good. <laughs> I love that though. I think it sounds I think it sounds great. I think because I mean it's so much it's got so much more um, kinetic energy than just for example I don't know what are you going to do show a screenshot of a page or you talk yeah, about it then, which yeah. is not to say if somebody were to do that it's bad but I, I like the idea of having some movement and having some energy to it is is a good idea yeah so uh, i'll i mean my idea right now is just to have half the recording with my face occasionally looking up at the camera but then the other half of it showing my hands uh and showing the book just on a table and kind of leafing through things so I don't know if that works. I might just record it, and if it doesn't work, then I'll delete it <laughs> and never publish it. But I just uh, I think it would be weird, um, given the fact that our show has so much video, I think it would be weird to just do a recording of me talking at the camera about the book. And I think it would also be weird uh, to just do an audio review uh, or just do a written review. I want to try something uh, a little bit different, uh, kind of something that um, presents the book in the same way we would present a game, right? You know, with mm-hmm. people talking about it and then showing footage of it at the same time. Um, so I don't know if it'll work, but that was my idea. And uh, I think John is giving me the go ahead here. So I'll try it out. Uh, and if it looks like garbage, if it doesn't work, then uh, <laughs> listener, you will never see it. 
and listen, if it works, and I, I'm com- I'm I'm optimistic it's going to work. Um, you know, we'll never cover books as much as games, but I'm already thinking Masters of Doom was my favorite, mm-hmm. my favorite um, uh, video game books. And then there's other books we could think about bringing in. And then one of these days, Peter Molyneux is going to write, you know, his life story, um, which would be interesting to like us. So no, do it. I say do it. Awesome. Be great. Uh, and then also for our listeners uh, who have been following along with Civs 101, uh, as you know, we have been recording episodes with scholars uh, focusing on one Civ uh, per episode. We've already had episodes up on America, Greece, uh, Zulus. And then uh, we have a episode that came out today, uh, Wednesday, uh, May 26th. Uh, featuring John Harney uh, talking about China on uh, some of the uh, upcoming episodes we've got uh, just to list them out here. Uh, I've got an episode with recorded already on Scotland, one recorded on Germany, one recorded on the Incas, uh, one recorded on Rome um, in the midst of scheduling one on England and then also on Norway uh, to get some more uh, Viking content out there, uh, which I'm sure the world <laughs> needs more of. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to covering uh, some of these other sieves uh, as we go along this summer. I've got down here in the list, uh, the Cree, uh, Egypt, uh, France, uh, India, uh, the Byzantines, Ethiopia, Grand Colombia, uh, and then the Aztecs. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll keep you posted on upcoming episodes and, you know, follow us on historyrespawn.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, History Respawn. And uh, you'll be able to see all the new Civs 101 content uh, that has come out. And I mean, people seem to enjoy it, at least on YouTube uh, so far. And I haven't gotten any big complaints from the patrons yet, John. So I guess we'll just keep doing it until. Um, everybody uh, stops watching. <laughs> I think it's going great. I think it's good. this latest episode with this Irish Chinese expert is just stellar. You know, it's <laughs> best work. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think it's great. I'm. It's it's an exciting thing. Awesome, awesome. Okay, uh, well, we're going to lead things off today by talking about some of the games uh, we've been playing recently, and so I will. Uh, I'll briefly discuss here a few small things that I've been playing, uh, and then pass things over to John. Um, but in terms of games for History Respawn, uh, I have been playing quite a bit of Cuphead uh, recently, which, uh, as you know, a very popular. Uh, kind of 2D platforming game uh, with a very distinctive uh, 1930s uh, art style. Uh, and I wanted to cover that uh, as part of a, a history respond uh, during the summer, do a video episode, a podcast on that, kind of looking at uh, the interwar period on the ways in which the interwar period is depicted uh, by video games. Since now we're, you know, going into uh, the 2020s, looking back to the 1920s, looking back uh, to 1930s, kind of, uh, uh, you know, following along with a bunch of centenaries that are uh, being remembered uh, in the coming decades, I think it'd be useful to take stock of the ways in which uh, the interwar period has been depicted by games. So that's part of that. Uh, I've also been playing Darkest Dungeon on the Switch, which uh, was a game I kind of considered covering for History Respawn, but uh, honestly, I've kind of bounced off of it a little bit. Um, there's a little bit, uh, I don't know what to say. It's kind of almost too much narrative and not enough <laughs> at the same time. Like there's there's so much uh, kind of a low level, level narrative from your characters 
Uh, but then at the same time, uh, there's not enough kind of overhead narrative in that game. And it's making it really difficult for me to play that uh, and enjoy it. And then uh, I've been playing uh, Tetris Effect. I got, um, uh, what is it, uh, the Xbox Game Pass uh, for the summer. Uh, and Tetris Effect is one of these uh, games that's part of Game Pass. It's also available on PlayStation 4. Uh, and I think they're coming out with a PlayStation 5 version uh, sometime this summer. Uh, but that game is great fun. Uh, I think uh, it's a game that originally came out on VR headsets. So it might even be more amazing on that. But I've really enjoyed just kind of chilling out at uh, 10 o'clock at night after the kids go to bed and playing a little Tetris effect and zoning out uh, and enjoying the visuals and the music uh, for that game. And the last thing I'll uh, bring up really uh, that I played recently is I played about uh, 10 to 15 hours of Watch Dogs Legion, which as you know is the third Watch Dogs title uh, and is set in kind of a, um, a near future dystopian version of London. Uh, and this game was really interesting to me, uh, not only because I was thinking about covering it as part of History Respawn, looking kind of the long history of surveillance, and in particular looking at the history of uh, CCTV uh, in London and in England. Um, but it was also really interesting to me because this game has an interesting mechanic with NPCs. So in this game, any NPC that you come across could potentially be recruited to becoming your player character. Uh, and you kind of uh, create a stockpile of NPCs uh, that have different skills. Uh, and as you uh, collect these characters, you can switch off between characters during different missions and doing traditional watchdog stuff, you know, like uh, breaking into a secure facility, uh, hacking, uh, you know, cameras, hacking computers, etc. cetera. Uh, and so it sounds really cool, but the actual method of playing it uh, and the actual process of playing through it has been really, really dull. And I think it's because of the focus on NPCs. There's not a single player character that has a storyline, has a background that you can really sink your teeth into and, you know, kind of experience their perspective on the world. So instead you're kind of given this series of really bland non-player characters that you can temporarily take control of uh, as though you were some sort of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, some sort of mind controlling, uh, amoeba or something like that. Uh, and so it is, uh, it, you know, that lack of a connection with an established player character with a backstory, uh, is something I'm really missing, uh, from watchdogs legions and was something that was really good in watchdogs Two, And, you know, there just hasn't been that kind of same narrative hook, that I got from Watch Dogs 2 in this game. So I don't I don't know how much I can actually continue playing that game. But that's what I've been up to recently. John, what about you? Yeah, it's um just really quickly on Watch Dogs Legion. I played a little bit of it. Um it reminds me of there was a game a long time ago called Messiah. Did you ever play that? No, I didn't. Um where you played this little kind of angel kind of character, like a little Cupid type character. It's a 2000 game and you could basically possess people. And, and when you weren't possessing someone, you were helpless. But anyway, there you go. So you heard it here first. Watchdog Legion took the uh, Messiah idea. But British cities are so heavily surveilled by yes. CCTV. Yes. I thought yeah. that was such kind of a rich, rich thing for them to go. But I, I had a similar reaction. Um, I've been playing Crusader Kings 3, as I gave away earlier. And uh, again, the world needs more uh, Viking content. I am playing a Norse lord um, who neighboring Strathclyde in modern-day Scotland. 
Um, big things to take away. This particular guy who took over had a lot of dread. So one of the nice things they do, especially when you start your game, you know, so they, they've really built up the kind of what came in a, came in DLC and CK2, a kind of an RPG style develop your character type stuff. So, you know, depending on whether their stewardship, which is effectively, you know, money management is good or their military stuff is good or their scheming is good. Um, you don't have to choose the tree that fits their best stat. Um, and then within that tree, there's three sub trees. And so you can really build a character. So you could build someone who is kind of stern, but fair, or you could build basically an absolute raving lunatic who just, you know, <laughs> like a mad king type character. You can do all these things. And what they'll do then when you start your game is that you're inheriting, like in my case, a 40 year old man, and he, he's already made access in these trees. So, you know, some video games would kind of say, here, you've got 16 points, you know, fill them out. And this game is like, no, 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 he, he is this person. And then when he dies and his son takes over, yeah, well, his son's been doing his own thing. So whether you like it or not, you're getting a smooth talking, you know, economic, economic genius, you know, um, but he's useless at fighting or if the case would be. And uh, but it, it's really helped me understand how good CK3 is, not just at onboarding new players, but at making the kind of whole replay system or replay vibe easier. So they have lots and lots of kind of suggested characters across different kinds of um, thematic kinds of ideas. So this particular thematic idea, I think it was either the adventuring one or just flat out the Viking Age one. And I decided to pick this guy. Um, and it's great. And one of the mechanics of him being in a tribe is that you can subjugate and intimidate a neighboring ruler if you have enough um, of the various types of prestige points and everything else. So I had developed the super fearsome 60-year-old Viking ruler who um, was able to scare the Scottish king so much that if I beat the Scottish king in a war, this, the king of Scotland become my vassal. Hmm. I was like, this is great. And the game doesn't let you just take over Scotland. You, it's, it's, the mechanics of the game don't work that way because you're overextended and it starts punishing you. This is great. And I'm about to defeat him. The war is almost over and my guy dies and my son takes over. And the war with Scotland is no more. The King of Scotland is not scared of me the way he was scared of my dad. Mm. And my brothers now own half the land I owned. And this is a key moment in a, in a, in a, in a Paradox game because I sat there and went, that's so cool. <laughs> I saved it and quit. <laughs> and the exact kind of thing that used to kind of frustrate me. So, so yeah, CK3, I think it's continuing to um, do all the things a nerdy historian wanted to do, which is make history super messy and complicated and not easy. Um, but that onboarding process is really, really working well. Good. Really working yeah. well. Awesome. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how many hours I've been now. 40 hours or something is working well. So that's good. Um, other games I played before we leave very briefly is an attempt at a 4X game that does not rely on violence. And perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not. Also doesn't really have any kind of historical theme at all. <laughs> I don't know if there's a statement there. Um, it's $20 on Steam. It's on Epic Store as well. Um, I just kind of picked it up. Uh, I thought I played it with my son, and we have played it together. Um, I also had one of these wonderful $10 vouchers for Epic, and so I kind of got it for, for, for $10. It's got a nice little kind of art style, a cutesy art style, and um, it's kind of intriguing. Um, so the mechanics in the game that do work, you kind of come out of this Fallout-style vault to start the game, um, but it quickly becomes actually quite reminiscent of, of, of an iPad builder-type game, mm. where the mechanics seem kind of simple at first. Um, but it's got a bit more to it than that. And so when you build a, a mine of a certain type, it creates pollution that can affect the nearby nearby huts and everything else. So I don't know that it would have the depth of even a sieve, for example, or some other kind of building game. 
Um, but really quite a quite a fun little game, actually. And I'm, I'm definitely not sorry that I got it. And also for people listening who have kids, you know, my seven-year-old is kind of into it. And especially in the early game, it's really not punishing in any way, shape or form. So he can just build roads and build huts and he's having a nice time. And he only, he only really needs me to come over if he's a little bit stuck in the tech tree kind of thing. Mm. So um, worth a look. Before yeah. we leave, I would say it's worth a look. Yeah, maybe we can look um, at it for uh, Sibs 101. Yeah, I was thinking of that too, and I, 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 you and I should talk about it, Bob, when I played a bit more of it, because so far I'm not sure if there's quite enough there to talk about kind of the absence of so many of the things that, for some people, derail the Civ games. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe there is something there, because they're, and also they've clearly designed the game intentionally to avoid that problem mm-hmm. of becoming a mass conqueror. You're not really conquering anything, so... So let's see how it goes. Yeah. And then uh, another indie game I've been playing is Sunless Skies. Uh, now, this game's been out quite a while, actually, but they just released what's called their Sovereign Edition, where they did a whole bunch of changes to the game, but it also coincides with releasing it on Xbox, PlayStation, and the Switch. So I'm playing my game on um, the PC. I bought it ages ago, but I'm very open. I'm, I'm considering buying a copy for my Switch, actually. To be honest, just to kind of throw some money the way of the developers. The developers are fail better games. Fantastic game for a developer. Um, Sunless Skies is kind of a, a spiritual sequel to Sunless Sea Seas, which itself is uh, a kind of a sequel to the Fallen London browser game, which is a free browser game. And all these things happen in the same universe, which is kind of a mixture of steampunk, horrorcore, Victorian England kind of vibes. Um, and so in Sunless Skies, you control a little puttering steam-powered spaceship that um, that travels around this kind of map interacting with ports, and it's kind of a hybrid type of a game. There's a little bit of gameplay, top-down kind of fighting, co- resource-collecting kind of stuff as you, as you captain your little um, ship. Um, there's a little bit of RPG elements there in which you can take on different kinds of people to be officers on your ship. And then there's a pretty kind of a heavy interactive fiction kind of element to it. And don't be scared away, because the interactive fiction—it's not—it's—it's—it's it's all fairly functional, and it's really well written. Um, and again, I think is worth worth a shot. And part of the reason I want to support this company is not just they make good games, but um, they have been uh, GamerBiz has named them, um, you know, a top kind of ethical place to work mm. three out of the last five years. Which I always want to, you know, we talked about Ubisoft earlier. You know, I want to kind of give props to a company that's really making efforts there. Um, I'm on their mailing list for Fallen London, and they really put effort into a lot of their, um, like their blasts that go out. You know, they really try and put a bit of creativity into stuff and make people feel like it's fun. So, um, if you haven't encountered Fail Better Games, I really recommend going, giving them a look. Um, and and we should really cover actually one of these games for History Respond because they've got this whole alt history vibe and they've got that browser game which is free and you can get a sense of do i dig what these people are doing or not because if you don't dig it you're not you know i will say i enjoy sunless skies much more than sunless seas Mm. which in turn i enjoyed more than the browser game but but the 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 narrative ideas are consistent throughout yeah i've been wanting to cover uh steampunk uh victorian era steampunk for quite a long while um you know again i've got a phd in modern british history so that should probably come as no big surprise but (laughs) i've been kind of debating about how to cover it because i feel like you know fail better games has you know come up a lot uh there's been other titles you know obviously uh victoria 2 uh is part of that mix um you know something like uh, 80 days uh as well Mm -hmm. kind of fits into that mold and so it's been kind of a way of uh, 
I think what's stopped me is kind of like, okay, well, how do I want to look at this and what kind of historians do I want to have come on and look at this topic? Because what's really interesting about steampunk is that it, uh, it's actually one of the least original, uh, types of, uh, (laughs) historical fiction in the sense that this type of steampunk, uh, historical imagination has been going on since the 19th century, mid 19th century, a lot of the kind of steampunk stories, what you consider to be steampunk stories, uh, were actually developed by the Victorians themselves, right? And so, very, very long history of historical fiction uh, of this era written when the era was going on, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so, I think it. It's the type of topic that I really want to do, but I do want to kind of do it justice in the sense of, you know, showing the long history of these type of things. And that's not to uh, throw shade on Fail Better or anybody else working with steampunk, but just to say, like, you know, some of the things that we consider to be new and niche are actually uh, optioning off very, very old tropes. Uh, within science fiction literature, within um, uh, 19th uh, century British culture uh, that have uh, been kind of carried forward, uh, not only in video games, but then also uh, in television shows. Um, You know, I know there's the uh, HBO show, The Nevers, uh, that's come out. It's kind of this kind of same era uh, of history, steampunk uh, type thing. So, um, yeah, I just... I think what's been stopping me is just like, oh, there's so many different ways to look at this. I should really do that at some point. And then that kind of work overwhelms me a little bit. Well, you know, I think, Bob, listen to you talk last couple of minutes. I think maybe we should just do it where I host you. You can be the guest to me. <laughs> and we'll do maybe some of Skies or one of, you know, I, I own a bunch of Steampunk games. Um, <laughs> we should just do that. You should just, we should hop okay. on and do it stream, okay. stream, stream yeah. style. All right. Yeah. That, twist kinda, my that arm. gets the ball rolling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Twist my yeah. arm. Okay. Well, something I, I know I want to hear you talk about the next game I've been playing. Um, I am delighted with how much I've been enjoying it because I kind of bought it, thought, am I being a bit of a fool here? Because I, I remember it so well. But I am playing Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Mm, yeah. And I am very, very happy. Bob, talk to me. I want to hear you talk about Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Yeah. So I've got, I've got about five minutes to spare. I've got to go and take care of my daughter. Uh, here she's out of school uh, and so uh, but just briefly I have been uh, playing Mass Effect Legendary Edition I I've, I ended up getting it on PS5 because I figured I would be more likely to play it uh, sitting on the couch than I would be uh, sitting at my desk with the computer and I have really enjoyed it. I've been really stunned I'm going to do it chronologically and so I've been playing Mass Effect 1 I'm really stunned with the visual improvements uh, to that game. Uh, the mechanical improvements, um, you know, they've done some work on the Mako, uh, the sh- the uh, the vehicle, the away vehicle that you use uh, on planetary missions in Mass Effect, and th- those have been nice. But I'd say just visually, the game looks really stunning. Um, you know, I could remember the way it looked uh, when I played it originally on the Xbox 360, and this looks like a completely new game, and that has been really awesome uh, to see. And I've also just been really enjoying the story, and not necessarily enjoying it, um, you know, as a new fiction, right? Because I played uh, these games several times over uh, when they originally came out. Uh, But I've been kind of interesting to me to see the ways in which the story has aged well and then also aged poorly. Um, you know, so for instance, there's ways in which 
uh, I'm kind of more annoyed with the uh, the bifurcation of the storyline based on Paragon or Renegade choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I know the way in which this series funnels you down certain paths uh, to get to the end of the series, Mass Effect 3. And then I've also been intrigued by how much game design and how much uh, kind of environments in games have changed in the past uh, almost 15 years since Mass Effect uh, 1 came out. So for instance, in Mass Effect 1, I can remember playing it uh, the first time, and being amazed with the scale of the place uh, and this huge environment I got to run through. And now when I play it, it's like, gosh, there's nobody at the Citadel. Like, there's like one person per room. It's like, where are all the people? Um, and you have this amazing moment near the beginning of the game, and hopefully this won't be spoilers, but you get to uh, go through this initiation process where you are made a specter. Uh, you know, as many people have uh, called it a space cop uh, in Mass Effect. And it's like this uh, big ceremony where you get inducted into this uh, elite group of space cops and they have people who kind of crowd around uh, to see it. And there's like maybe four people on a balcony who are looking over (laughs) you while this is happening. Whereas in modern games, there would be hundreds of NPCs uh, that would be looking on and you would feel the scale and this huge space that they created would be completely filled out with NPCs. But that was just not the case, not possible in 2007. So I've been really enjoying it. I've been really enjoying playing it. Uh, I'm doing a uh, Paragon Femship uh, right now. Uh, and I told myself I was going to do Renegade, and I, I haven't done it. I've just basically recreated my same character from the main series. So, But I've, I've really enjoyed it. What, what about you, John? What's your experience been? Um, yeah, I'm, I'll echo everything you said. Loving it. Surprised at how much I'm appreciating the graphical improvements. I'm trying the space a-hole playthrough because I never quite did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's more of a kind of an angry space fascist because the thing about playing Renegade is sometimes Renegade option is just like, why would I? That's just weird. Like, that's just a weird thing to say <laughs> in, this, in this particular environment, you know. Um, but yeah, I know everything. And uh, uh, yeah, again, more meta stuff. It's scary how old that first game is. It doesn't yeah. feel like that long ago that I played it. And um, and it's weird, like all these things on Twitter now. Oh, do you know the same amount of time between now and such a movie as also in that movie and this previous movie, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But yeah, we're in that space now. I don't think of Mass Effect as a classic in that sense, but yeah, I mean, for for an eighteen-year-old, it may as well be the Maltese Falcon. Like it's crazy, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah, but, all right, no. But well, it's great. It's yeah. great. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it. I yeah. had fun. Yeah, sure. Sorry, I've got to cut things short. I, I've already left my daughter alone for too long. So, uh, parenthood. Uh, so, uh, the ultimate game. Um, <laughs> so, uh, that does it for today's episode. Uh, uh, and we will uh, be back uh, with more discussion episodes uh, during the summer covering the games we've been playing and then also uh, some of the games we've been playing for History Respawn and for Sibs 101. Uh, and if you're interested in our work here, uh, you know, please follow us on historyrespawn.com or on Twitter uh, at History Respawn. Uh, and then if you really enjoy our work and want to support us, uh, please consider uh, supporting us on Patreon. Uh, our site there is uh, patreon.com forward slash history respawn. Uh, and HR patrons get news about upcoming episodes. Uh, they get to ask questions uh, to our scholarly guests and they get to uh, also participate in our Discord uh, chat room, which uh, has been kind of 
left to one side uh, as we John and I have been finishing up the academic semester, but should should probably heat back up uh, as we go into the summer months. Uh, we'll see. Uh, hopefully, John and I won't be spamming our Discord server with <laughs> talk about Mass Effect, uh, this you know fifteen year old game or however old it is. But all right, uh, but that does it. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us today, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>